So, welcome to Holy Thursday, the beginning of the Triduum, the three days of Easter, which are the real focusing of our minds and imagination and our hearts on the meaning of this story that we have been recalling during Holy Week already and which we have been preparing for throughout the last 40 days. The meaning of 40 days, as for example in, the, um, in Ramadan, uh, the biblical meaning of 40 days is uh, a, a period of time during which something can be accomplished. So it's the necessary time to do something. And so the, what we have been working towards uh, for Lent is a, a better way of celebrating Easter so that we can enter more fully into the meaning and of the words of the rituals and the, uh, the spirit of this story, this event. So uh, we begin uh, this evening uh, with the a Eucharistic celebration, the Mass, uh, in particular remembering the first Mass or the first uh, moment in which the Eucharist, as we recognize it, was celebrated, the Last Supper, one of the most famous images in the world, Leonardo, Leonardo's uh, Last Supper. Um, so tonight we, we begin by celebrating this, and at the, at, as we as we begin to celebrate it, the opening ritual will be the washing of the feet. And this is described in the Gospel of John, which uh, as a Gospel is, is another one of those four cameras which are observing and recording, as it were, the events of, of Easter from different perspectives, actually at different times. Um, but this Gospel is in many ways the most mystical of the Gospels. It's the, a Gospel in which we see the, in, in, the interpretation of, of the events uh, and the meaning of what is happening uh, as love. It's the Gospel of a mysticism of love. And um, it's also the Gospel in which we see Jesus at his most human and at his most, at his, at his most divine, if you like. The fullest, deepest meaning of who he is. So it begins with this account uh, of the festival of Passover. And <clears throat> Jesus knowing that the hour had come 
knowing that the hour had come for him to pass from this world. Knowing the hour at which you will die is quite a terrifying prospect. Uh, we all know we're going to die. Um, at least we think we know it, but it's sort of a knowledge we, we just park uh, safely out of sight. But actually to, to know that you're going to die at a particular time is uh, quite a, would, would be a transformative, uh, it would transform us. It would be terrifying at first, as it is when people get a, a, a painful, a bad uh, diagnosis of a terminal illness, it's terrifying. But then, very often, people will say that they have begun to experience life in, with greater intensity, greater gratitude than ever before. I had a, a friend who went to the dentist and the dentist frightened him and he said, I, I see a little problem here. It may not be anything words nobody likes to hear. It may not mean anything, but uh, we, should, we should get it uh, tested. So the test went off and he had to wait a week for, this, for the results. And his whole being was, was, was changed by this, uh, this, this event and the uncertainty of it and the, what, does, what am I going to do? And he said, although there was at first this fear, very soon the fear was, was reduced because a sense of the beauty of life came to him much more strongly. And the, the preciousness of life, the real value of life. He said, you know, the things he usually worried about uh, no longer seemed so important. And he began to recognize the real gifts, the real uh, blessings in his life and to just appreciate them uh, for themselves. So he was in a, a very sort of um, agitated state in one way, but also a very joyful state in another way. And then he went back to the dentist and uh, the dentist said, good news, nothing to worry about. And uh, he heaved a big sigh of relief, uh, but then he began to worry about his mortgage and uh, arguments he was having uh, with people at work and so the ordinary anxieties of life uh, began to flood back uh, in, into his feeling. So, so these few words, he, he, he knew the hour had come. So from this moment on and the next few hours of his life, everything is, has a heightened reality. And then 
he said, uh, St. John says, he had always loved those who were his in the world, but now he showed how perfect his love was. So in other words, when you know that time is limited, uh, what, what is the thing you most want to do when people on the, the planes at 9-11 uh, knew that they were not going to survive? This was a suicide mission. Um, it, it, it seems that the first thing they wanted to do was to tell the people they loved that they loved them very much. So they were sending messages, phone messages, uh, up, up to the very last minute. And when somebody is dying in more peaceful circumstances and there's time to prepare for death, uh, a good death means that uh, people come around you, people you love, people who love you, and there's nothing to say or to do, really, except that we love each other. And in saying that, in this moment of heightened uh, reality, when everything is reduced to its most precious essentials, um, our love itself becomes more perfect because it can be expressed and shared more, most um, freely and generously. Um, that's a good death. That's basically the death you'd all like to be able to have. So, um, the next verse, St. John says they were at supper and then he mentions Judas. So the story is not, is, is not, uh, is, it's a story of great light, brilliant illumination of meaning, but uh, there's a shadow in it all the way. Judas is around. Uh, and then the brutality of the authorities and the false trial and the suffering. So there's this powerful shadow in this story as well. But the shadow would not be there if it were not for the light. You know, when the sun comes out, things cast shadows if they block the light. But if there's no sun, or at night time, it's just darkness. Um, so, uh, so we're, 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 we're looking at the light and the meaning of this light that, that has been uh, awakened uh, in the, the consciousness of Jesus. But we're not unaware of the shadow that is cast. And then, Jesus knew that the Father had put everything into his hands. So, what does that mean? 
It means he accepted full responsibility. He accepted what was happening. You know, life, uh, whatever happens in life, is put into our hands. But we can choose either to accept it or we try to get rid of it. Uh, or we try to hide it. But if we truly accept it, uh, we become one with it. And it's the same with, our, with our, our dying, for example. There's a moment of acceptance when you say, well, I would like to live for another 10 years or 20 years, or, but I can't. So I accept this now. Or uh, either the joys or the, or when a child is born uh, into a family, this child is accepted with full responsibility. So whatever life gives us, it, there has to be this, this response of acceptance. Not, and it depends, is it full acceptance? Not very often. Usually it's half-hearted. Or there are moments of full acceptance, and then you begin to say, oh, I wonder whether I should accept this or not. Yeah. Maybe it's too much. Maybe I'm not getting what I wanted. So we learn to, little by little, to accept what is. It's the best way of changing things, in fact, is to accept what happens fully. And uh, so when, when at this moment I think we see Jesus accepting everything that is happening. And he knew who he was. He knew he came from God and was returning to God. So that's quite an introduction uh, to an evening meal. And, but now it becomes more specific. He got up from the table, removed his outer garment, and taking a towel, wrapped it around his waist. So he becomes like a servant or a slave. It would be like, um, you know, President Macron going to hosting a big uh, dinner and then uh, he stands up and takes off his jacket and puts on a what do you call it but puts on an apron and uh, he, he says to the he says to the all the guests for the heads of state and heads of government you know now i'd like to serve you Oh, it would create a bit of commotion, as it does for, for Peter especially, because he, he, he began, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he was wearing. So this is, in, in, in his culture at that time, this is the work of a servant. Uh, people would arrive at somebody's house, they'd have been walking along a dusty road, 
uh, and the servant would wash their feet. So you, you always feel nice and refreshed when you have clean feet and uh, you're in, ready to go into the meal. So Jesus is doing this very menial task. So then he comes to Peter, the chief disciple, and um, Peter just refuses. He absolutely refuses. Like Lucifer in the myth of the fall of the angels, he says, I will not serve. Or, actually what he says is, in effect, I will not be served. Okay. I will not be served. And Peter says to him, angrily, I think we have to see Peter being quite angry with Jesus for turning everything upside down. And we always get annoyed with people when they turn things upside down for us and challenge us. And even the people you put on a pedestal, you get angry with and, and uh, you may pull them off the pedestal uh, when they do that. So Peter's doing this. Lord, you, are you going to wash my feet? This is, this is perverse. This is wrong. And Jesus said, at this moment you don't know what I'm doing, you don't understand. But later you will understand. And this is a, a theme of the, uh, of the Gospels in general, uh, that the disciples did not understand who Jesus was, or what he was talking about, or what he meant by the kingdom. They got everything, pretty well everything, confused, and sometimes they badly misunderstood what he was saying. Sometimes they, they got it completely the wrong way around. They thought, for example, that uh, at the end of his mission uh, would be the establishment of some earthly uh, power structure, and they used to fight among themselves about where they would serve and who would be, who would have the better salary and the better job. So this is another example of the close disciples of Jesus who loved him, but they didn't understand what he was doing or saying. So although Jesus says this to Peter in a, in a a gentle enough way. You don't understand at the moment what I'm doing, but trust me, you'll, you'll, get, you'll see the meaning of it later. And in 2019 years, people at Bombeau will be washing each other's feet uh, to remember this moment. Uh, but Peter still doesn't, uh, very typical of Peter, impetuous, impatient. Never, says Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus 
uh, becomes a little tougher, a little stronger, and he says, okay, but if I don't wash you, you will have nothing in common with me. So you might as well go out and order a Big Mac for, for this evening's meal, because there's no point in our just pretending to have this meal together if you don't uh, remain open to what I am teaching you now. And then uh, Peter says, well then, <laughs> he says, well, in that case, don't wash only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So Peter usually says stupid things uh, at important moments. So Jesus, again, rather patiently says, well, if you've taken a bath, you don't need to be washed uh, anymore. So hopefully you will have washed your feet by this evening. He is, he, that, person is, that person is already clean. Um, so then when he had washed their feet he put on his clothes again and he went back to the table and he said do you understand what I have done to you and then the next uh, words that he speaks take us really into the heart of of the Easter mystery and really the heart of Christian faith. You call me Master and Lord and you're right because I am but if I, the Lord and Master, have washed your feet in this way, you should wash each other's feet. This is how you have to relate to each other. I've given you an example so that you may copy what I have done to you. So this is actually the most explicit moment uh, in the Gospels where Jesus says, you've got to do exactly what I am doing. And Jean Vanier says that um, we, we, the, the church uh, over the centuries has, has really not taken that saying of Jesus very seriously. Because the washing of feet, even as a, a physical um, gesture, Obviously, tonight, we will wash each other's feet, not because we had dirty feet, but because it's a sign, a very tangible sign, that we are relating to each other in a spirit of service, not manipulation, not control, not exploitation. We're not playing games with each other. We're not trying to get something out of the other person. 
but we are relating to each other in a community of love, which is the most difficult kind of community to live in. Because it, as Jesus shows, it denies you ultimately any playing of games. Jesus is patient with the, the, the games that the disciples play. We have to be patient with each other when we play games with each other. By playing games, I mean we, we try to manipulate. We're not fully open or honest with each other. That's pretty difficult to do. So we have to be patient with each other and forgiving. Nevertheless, uh, we, we, the, the kind of community that Jesus is inspiring, or let's say the kind of human interaction he is describing, does not accept anything less than the spirit of love, the spirit of service. So, we, uh, we see in this uh, gesture, the washing of the feet, a sign, which is why it's called, why Jean Vanier calls it a sacrament. It's a sign, uh, an effective sign of how we are or should be with each other. And a sacrament is effective in the sense that you don't have to fully understand it and you don't have to uh, do it perfectly. But even to do it in good faith, in an open-minded way, is very effective. It teaches you, it changes you, it strengthens you. As does the Eucharist itself. The, the Eucharist, as it has developed in Christian <coughs> life, uh, is, is the great sign of this uh, teaching of Jesus. Uh, with many, many other levels which will just look at uh, briefly. But above all, I think we can say this washing of the feet, the lost sacrament of Christianity, as Jean Vanier calls it, um, reflects the spirit of service that is at the heart of the teaching of Jesus. And it's at the heart of the teaching of Jesus because it is in fact at the it is the authentic uh, dynamic of all human relationships. Jesus is not saying you have to be superhuman. He's just saying be human. Don't be less than human. Don't underplay or undervalue your humanity.
So the spirit of service. In the uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, they have uh, this idea of the bodhisattva ideal. A bodhisattva is a person, human being, who has come to the, a point in their development where they may be ready to, to go to heaven, but they commit themselves wholeheartedly, body, mind and spirit, to the service of, of the world, to the service of others, and to relieve the suffering of others wherever they find it. In other words, they, they are uh, dedicated, other-centered people, altruistic people. And in Shan uh, book, great Buddhist text called by Shantideva, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, he uh, recommends the, uh, that, that each um, person on the spiritual path should take this as their ideal. So even though you're not a bodhisattva yet, nevertheless, you say, I'd like to be. <laughs> and I would, I will commit myself to do the very best I can to become a bodhisattva. So that's, it, it, it's not, although we call it an ideal, it becomes something practical. Because you say, seriously, this is what I will try to commit myself to. So that one day, I hope, I will be this kind of person. So even now, at just even at the beginning of our spiritual journey, we look ahead clearly to this ideal or to this goal. And I think this is what Jesus uh, is saying when he tells us to love one another, to lay down our life for each other, uh, to renounce all our possessions, uh, to be poor in spirit, okay. um, to, to turn towards the needs of others, including their material and psychological needs. So he's, he's not saying this is going to happen in 24 hours, just because you have some water poured on your head not going to turn you into this kind of disciple, but, uh, but this is what you are in fact uh, traveling towards. This is your goal. And it's great to have a goal. You know, there's nothing worse than driving around aimlessly, at least not for very long. It's, it's good to know where you are going and to trust and believe in this uh, destination. 
So, um, Peter, when he refused to have his feet washed, what was he doing? He had a distorted idea of this uh, discipleship, of the Bodhisattva ideal. He wanted to see himself serving, but he didn't want to be served. He wanted to wash the feet. He would have been quite happy if Jesus had said, wash my feet. But that is half the story. And he was stuck in his own self-image. He wasn't other-centered. He was, in fact, very self-centered. And when we're self-centered, we are controlled by our shadow. We're controlled by our fears, by our vanity, by our anger, by our sadness. And the only way we can get out of that is to turn the attention off ourselves. We, that's what we do in meditation and it's what we do when we wash each other's feet or whenever we bring a spirit of service to our relationships to others. This can be embarrassing and I think uh, many, in many churches uh, today, that's one of the reasons why the washing of the feet is, uh, is done reluctantly and in a very sort of formal way. Usually the priest just washes the feet of a few people well chosen. Um, um, and, but here tonight and in the Lash communities uh, everywhere in the world, following Jean Bernier's insight, uh, we wash each other's feet. Everybody washes each other's feet. Now, you don't, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to, and you don't have to feel bad about it. But the invitation is, is that we form little, so I'll talk about it later, but we've, we form a little circle. It's in this room, is it? So we'll be in this room. We'll form some small circles. Um, it's easier to do these things in smaller groups. And we will wash each other's feet. And then we'll go to the chapel and that will be our that, that's, that's our preparation then for the Mass. But the Mass itself is simply a continuation of that spirit of service. The, the Mass, uh, as we know it, derives from the, 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 the Seder meal, the Jewish, uh, Jewish ritual meal, Passover meal. Um, but even behind that, and behind the story of Exodus, uh, the, the, the liberation from Egypt, 
that which, which began with the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood of the lamb was put on the doors of the houses where the Israelites were staying so this would protect them from the the angel of death that came through the city um, uh, as one of the plagues of Egypt but even behind that there is a, a, a long history of human sacrifice even back into Neolithic uh, caves and uh, temples we don't know of course what they believed or exactly what they did but there seems almost certainly to have been forms of sacrifice so as, as far back as human beings go we can uh, see the uh, presence of sacrifice so for a long time sacrifice was a service to the gods or to the higher power that we human beings performed in order to stay friendly with the higher power or in order to ensure that the sun rose the next morning or that there was fertility in the tribe and new children would be born or that the crops would be uh, uh, bountiful, would be prosperous. So the idea of sacrifice, which was, which of course uh, was um, varied according to different cultures, but often involved human sacrifice, even of your own children. So this was taken pretty seriously. So the idea of sacrifice as involving the destruction or the offering of something precious to you in order to receive something from the higher power. But that idea of sacrifice began to change about 500 years before Christ in what historians call the Axial Age this was a period when all of the major religious traditions as we recognize them began to take shape so this was the time of the Buddha the time of the Hebrew prophets the time of Lao Tzu uh, the time of uh, the Greek philosophers I've forgotten somebody anyway a few other people like that and so this great movement of uh, and the Upanishads the Indian scriptures so this was a time of uh, over a couple of or a few hundred years perhaps a simultaneous awakening of the human mind to itself so at this period human consciousness dived deeply into itself and this began to change the idea of sacrifice from being an external gesture involving often destruction 
or something beautiful or precious. Uh, and it became involved more with a spiritual act of attention. So, uh, Hosea, the prophet Hosea, says, um, what I want is mercy, not sacrifice, says the Lord. And uh, even though they continue to sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, hundreds or thousands of animals uh, uh, every day, the smell apparently must have been pretty unpleasant, especially in the summer. Uh, so although they continue to sacrifice animals, because it's easy to do, it's quite easy to sacrifice a few sheep, but it's more difficult to take the attention off yourself. But Jesus quotes these words of Hosea, Hosea, uh, showing how, how, how he is in this new wave of human understanding. And indeed, we, could, we might say the, the fulfillment of it. So what happens then when we turn our attention off ourselves? In a way, we die to ourselves. That's why it's so difficult to meditate, to take the attention off our thoughts, even good thoughts, even thoughts about God or thoughts about ourselves, or thoughts about people we love. At the time of meditation, as we know, we say the mantra as a way to, to, to sacrifice, to let go of, not to destroy. This is not an act of violence against ourselves, but to, uh, to take the attention off ourselves, to turn the camera around, as it were, we're not taking a selfie when we're meditating. That's, you know, that's a very significant popular cultural image. The man who invented this selfie machine, I think, is one of the richest men in the world because it, it tunes into something very powerful in our, in our culture. So it's not taking a photograph of yourself, it's, it's turning outwards towards the other. So, but this is a sacrifice. But it's a much deeper kind of sacrifice than the religious sacrifice of the past. Because what is the sacrifice? You. And who is offering this sacrifice? You. So you are the priest and the sacrifice every time we meditate. No one can do this for you. No, no external priest can do it for you. No teacher of meditation can do it for you. So, uh, this, anyway, so, um, and this is how the letter to the Hebrews actually un came to understand 
Jesus as a high priest reflecting the end of the old kind of priesthood. Because the, in, in the past, the high priest would go into the temple, sacrifice whatever the animal was, and then come out and the people would be satisfied and feel secure for another 24 hours. But in, for, in the case of Jesus, he is the high priest and he is offering himself. Well, so are we. There's a deep connection here, therefore, between the Eucharist and meditation. The fruit of the sacrifice of attention, when we turn the attention of ourselves, what does that produce? It produces the state of self-giving. You become able to give yourself only when you have started to take the attention off yourself. And we are then surprised that this state or condition of self-giving is such a pleasant one. Because before, we're frightened of it. We don't want to give ourselves, or only in teaspoons, little bits at a time. And we want to receive uh, recognition for what we give. But now, we begin to really understand that this is the way to lead a good life and a happy life and a peaceful life. To be, as, 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 for as long as we can, uh, in the state of self-giving, which is the fruit of changing where we place our attention. So direct fruit of the work of meditation. And it's in self-giving that we experience real presence. Now, I think Catholics uh, have for a long, for long time thought of the real presence in the Eucharist. Sometimes they, they think of it as something that only we, the Catholics, uh, can make happen. You know, so we kind of rejected the validity of the Eucharist in other churches uh, because you know, we might say in a rather condescending way, well, yes, you're very good. It's very nice service that you're doing, but it's not the real presence because only we can make the real presence happen. So it, it's <laughs> As soon as you start to think like that, it's a sign there's something wrong. We've, we've gone off track. We're missing, missing the mark. So, the other danger, I think, uh, when we think about the real presence is that we can put it somewhere. 
So we put the real presence in the Eucharistic form in a tabernacle. Now, when we open the little icon chapel here at Bombo, we'll have the Blessed Sacrament reserved there. So I'm not saying this is, this is wrong to do. It's only wrong if we think that the real presence is somehow locked into that tabernacle or released when we take it out. In fact, what meditation teaches us is the real meaning of the Eucharist. Because the real presence in the Eucharist or in the Blessed Sacrament is the same real presence. Exactly the same, it must be, to the real presence of Christ in you, as St. Paul says. Christ in us. So these are different, different expressions of or ways of understanding the real presence. One is sacramental, related to a, a sign. It's a beautiful sign. It's a powerful sign. Um, but the other is the indwelling presence. And what is the sign of that? The sign of that is how we live what we are like, the kind of people we are. If we are in touch with that real presence, we change. Obviously, we become different people. Our, our shadow side, our faults and our problems are all not miraculously changed overnight, but they are affected and begin to change. This is why we need to see, this, see both meditation and the Eucharist as experiences of healing. The sacrament is not, sorry, the, the Eucharist is not um, something only for good people to have, or perfect people, which is how many Catholics in the past were, were trained to think, and you felt very guilty because maybe you had a sin that wasn't forgiven, and so you couldn't receive communion. Many of you will remember that. But, um, so we were often misled to think of the Eucharist as um, the, the reward for being, you know, at least temporarily, a, a perfect person. Never forget who, was, who, who did Jesus hand the bread to in the uh, Last Supper, to Judas. So, um, and there's no mention that Judas refused it and said, oh, can I go to confession first? <laughs> so, we need to re reconfigure the meaning of the Eucharist in terms of healing and grace and forgiveness and the, and the tenderness of Christ. And what helps us to reconfigure the Eucharist in that way in our minds is meditation. When we approach it in a contemplative way, 
This is how the Eucharist uh, makes sense. So the Eucharist uh, has, has always been identified with the sacrifice of the cross, which we will particularly turn our attention to tomorrow. And there's a great truth in that, provided we understand what the sacrifice of the cross means, why it is the culmination of the spirit of service at the heart of the teaching of Jesus. And that the cross, we'll talk about this uh, later tomorrow. So when we give ourselves, even in very, you know, imperfect ways, but we have this bodhisattva ideal, we would like to give ourselves, we want to serve, then we prepare for the experience of presence, of real presence. Even if it's imperfect, we are able then to recognize the attention that is being directed towards us. That it is our feet that Jesus is washing. And we allow that. We say, okay, you can wash my feet. I understand. I'm a bit uncomfortable about it because it, I feel better if I'm washing your feet because you're my Lord and Master. But we begin to get the point that unless we can receive, we cannot give. And if we remain only with the receiving half, we become passive, we become, we develop a sort of passive image of ourselves. Um, if we only, if we identify only with the giving side, then um, we also develop uh, an image of ourselves as the great giver, the martyr. You know, it's pretty terrible having to live with people like that. So, the, what today uh, teaches us, the washing of the feet, is that we give and receive in a healthy human relationship and in our relationship with God. We, when our feet have been washed this evening, we will turn and wash the feet of the person next to us and they will thank us and then they will do the same. So then you create this circle of giving and receiving, which becomes, if you could get that working on a national level, you have a just society. So the Eucharist not only is this mystical moment that nourishes us and teaches us, but it's also a, a prophetic statement. It also says something about how human beings should share the good things of the earth, with each other in a fair way. So that when we pass communion around and you, you come to take the host, 
you don't say, oh, I'll take a few more hosts than the other person. <laughs> or when the wine comes, you take <laughs> your proper amount, you don't <laughs> knock it all back. Okay. And nobody minds doing that at the Eucharist. So why, why should we mind doing it in our corporations and institutions as well? So let's um, end with these words again. tell you most solemnly, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the person who sent him. Now that you know this, happiness will be yours if you behave accordingly. Thank you.